Hi, and welcome to the August edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we're joined by Dave Rendell, who will be discussing something most practitioners probably consider on a daily basis, steroid-induced laminitis. And Dr. Isabel Kern will be talking about bacteremia induced by teeth extraction. Dave Rendell is based at Rainbow Equine Hospital in Malton, North Yorkshire, and is a European and RCVS specialist in equine internal medicine. His most recent paper, which can be found in the early view section on the EVJ website, is titled, Does Oral Prednisolone Treatment Increase the Incidence of Acute Laminitis? Hi Dave, thanks for giving up some of your evening to chat with us today. Um, your paper investigates the link between the use of oral prednisolone and laminitis. So was there a particular reason you decided to investigate this now? Um, <clears throat> I sp- it's a question I think that had had troubled a lot of us for quite a period of time as to whether indeed there was a link. And as internal medicine clinicians, I think we are we're forced um, or we choose to use prednisolone very frequently. And, and we're always concerned about whether indeed there is a link. And if there is a link, quite how big a risk prednisolone poses in terms of laminitis. I suppose that the, the timing was, was opportunity really, but it was also prompted by the fact a product was, was being licensed uh, for the treatment of, uh, a prednisolone product was being licensed for the treatment of REO in horses, uh, which was obviously causing um, quite a bit of discussion and also I think resulting in an increase in, in frequency of the use of prednisolone. So it was just a question that, that in a referral setting I was being asked all the time and it, it felt like we ought to try and answer the question as best we can. And this essentially was our, was our best stab at answering the question. So can you give us a little scientific detail about the proposed underlying mechanism that links glucocorticoids to laminitis? Uh, <laughs> scientific, no, probably not. Um, I, I, I think, honestly, I don't think anyone really knows. There's been, there's been a number of suggestions made, um, some of which are then disputed. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly credible, but uh, theor- theoretical links that have been suggested uh, would include uh, potentiating uh, vasoactive or sorry vasoconstriction or vasoconstrictive actions of catecholamines um, on digital vessels and therefore affecting digital blood supply. That would be the first um, steroids inducing protein catabolism and therefore causing lamella weakening. Potentially effects on um, glucose supply to keratinized sites within the hoof and therefore also causing weakening. Uh, possibly um, increased intestinal permeability to toxins, although. Obviously, that um, that theory has sort of fallen away with the uh, the increased interest in endocrinopathic laminitis, and then um, yeah, leading on from from endocrine laminitis, the potential for steroids causing further insulin dysregulation, hyperinsulinemia. Obviously, with a number of studies now demonstrating a link between hyperinsulinemia and laminitis, that that I think is the theory that attracts now the most attention. Um, but but honestly, I don't think we know. So previous studies have looked at the incidence of different glucocorticoids administered by various routes. Have they found a causal link between that and laminitis? Um, again, I would say no. Um, I think there's a, given, given everyone's awareness of the potential link between steroids and laminitis, I think, it's, I think people would be surprised how little, how little is being performed. But the two most notable studies, I guess, look more at, um, tri- look at triamcinolone and its association with laminitis. So there was a study formed in Australia, I think, back in 2004, which was McCluskey and Kavanagh, I think, um, where they found 2% of just over 200 um, cases that were treated with triamcinolone developed laminitis. Um, And then in a commentary, I think it was an EBJ, um, 
Andy Bathe, um, late 2000, 2007 or 2008 thereabouts, um, suggested that 0.15% um, of horses that had intra-articular administration of, of steroids went on to develop laminitis, so even lower figures again. So we're talking tiny numbers. Um, neither of those studies had a control population, and, and those figures um, are actually lower than the instance of laminitis that's generally talked about in, in studies of the general population. So, so one, would, one would deduce from that, that that it probably wasn't really a risk factor, despite some high-profile cases uh, suggesting a link between uh, trimestinolone and laminitis. Um, being an internal medicine clinician, I can't say I'm hugely interested in, in intra-articular medication, and that was part of the reason really why we wanted to try and have a look at prednisolone. And we also tried originally, we wanted to look at dexamethasone as well, but we just didn't didn't have sufficient numbers to justify uh, doing so. Because um, the, re- the reports uh, around those are limited essentially to individual case reports. Um, so there isn't any any evidence of any quality out there at all. So um, so yeah, there's a, a distinct lack of, of good quality evidence. So again, our study was, I'm not saying it's good quality, but it's perhaps slightly better quality than, than what had gone before. And certainly in terms of prednisolone, it was. So could you tell us how you conducted your study and what study design you used? Um, yeah, it was it was retrospective, uh, reviewing case records um, within the ambulatory part of a hospital practice over a 13-year period up to 2014. Um, so where horses have been treated with prednisolone, we extracted patient and, and treatment data. Um, and we detailed any episodes of laminitis that occurred and recorded how they related temporally to prednisolone treatment and also what obviously what the outcome of the laminitis was. Um, for every prednisolone case, we then um, found two time-matched controls, which we tried to get the case that was treated by the same clinician before and after, um, where those cases were in, in, in a small number being treated for laminitis already, clearly they were excluded, any foals were excluded, um, and therefore we then moved on to the case before or the case after, in a handful, uh, we then resorted to cases that were treated by a colleague of similar experience within the same practice on the same day. Um, so we matched them as, as carefully as we could. And as I say, two controls for, for every case. Um, jo Ireland dictated how we did that. And she also did all the statistical analysis. Um, and we essentially compared the incidence of laminitis between the PRED group and the control group. Um, she performed Kaplan-Meier estimates of survivor function, and then she did univariable as well as multivariable analysis using Cox proportional hazards models to to look at individual risk factors um, and the potential interplay between them. So what were your main findings and conclusions? Uh, They surprised us. Uh, We, well, I guess I essentially was looking to quantify quantify the risk, um, but what we actually found were uh, a smaller number of laminitis cases in the prednisolone group compared to the control group. So uh, we had 416 prednisolone-treated cases uh, as opposed to 814 matched controls. There were 16 laminitics in the pred group as opposed to 46 in the control group, which uh, worked out was 3.9% laminitis in the pred group compared to 5.7% in the control group, uh, which was 26 uh, cases per 100 years of risk in the PRED group as opposed to 3.5 per 100 years of risk in the control group. Um, so, yeah, clearly there was no no significant difference between the two groups. There was no increase in risk associated with, with prednisolone. It had, it had also been my anecdotal observation that steroid-associated laminitis carried a worse prognosis than, than other cases of laminitis, which uh, not for the first time I was found to be wrong. Um, and... 
Uh, we three three of the cases in the preg group, which was 0.7 percent, were euthanized, as opposed to 12 in the control group, which is 1.5 percent, were euthanized. So, um, so yeah, the, the surprising results really. Quite a difference. Mm. So you looked at other risk factors for the development of laminitis. So what main uh, yeah. factors did you find predispose? Uh, I d- yeah, I don't think they will come as a surprise to, to anyone. The risk factors we looked at were obviously treatment with prednisolone, um, presence of PPID or EMS, previous history of laminitis, age, sex, uh, breed, and the primary disease that horse were being, horses were being treated for. Um, looking at the univariable analysis, the risk factors I think that came out were the presence of endocrine disease, previous history of laminitis, increasing age, uh, when we went on to perform, or when Joe went on to perform a multivariable analysis, uh, only EMS and age came out in the in the final model. They were the only risk factors that remained. So, uh, so the the usual risk factors that we all talk about, really. Okay, so most practitioners um, are often understandably reluctant to give fat, their fat pony patients um, prednisolone, and I can see that in your study, I think you had less ponies than horses um, in your pred group. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think if this study population contained more of an even number of horses and ponies that you'd find different results? I d- clearly it would be good. To, it would be good to have a, a much much bigger population um, and control things a lot more tightly. But I don't think so because there was there was no statistical difference between the two groups, and the, the difference in distribution, uh, as well as not being statistically significant, was was pretty subtle. Um, so I don't I don't think so. I don't think that would have made a big difference. Okay, and do you think if there were any, were there any limitations of this paper? Uh, yeah, always, aren't there? Um, I think a major limitation was the fact it was a retrospective study. Um, the data was was incomplete, um, and we weren't able to control cases in the way you would you would do if you were constructing a prospective study. Um, it was one practice population, albeit a, a practice population that contained a wide variety of, of ages and breeds and was was typical of the the usual domestic horse population in the UK um, our numbers were pretty pretty good um, by the standards of, of most equine studies but compared to most um, epidemiological studies and certain human studies they were still pretty small so it'd be nice to have have bigger numbers um, and as I say if, if you could you design a prospective study where you controlled uh, the, the dose rate and the dose regimen more tightly than than was in our study, um, and I think you, you picked up on the on the pony point and the endocrine point already. I think it it would have been good to have had a much better handle on the endocrine status with respect to PPID and EMS in in the animals in in both groups, and and I guess ideally you control for that in a in a prospective study. Um, there was the potential for bias, um, I think, in that. Um, perhaps the clinicians concerned would have been less likely to have given uh, steroids to those ponies that they suspected to have PPID and EMS, which I think you, you pick up on in, in the pony point earlier. A lot of this work was performed uh, before the big marketing and awareness campaigns of, of endocrinopathic, if you like that term, laminitis. Um, and so I don't think, I think there is the potential for bias there, which you could exclude with a prospective study. But when we compared the, the instance of, of endocrine disease between the two groups, there was no, there was no statistical difference. So, um, but yeah, it's still a concern. That's a potential cause of bias. Um, yeah, I think as we, as we mentioned earlier, we didn't look at dexamethasone. It'd be nice to look at dexamethasone as well. Um, I think anecdotally, a lot of us would suspect that dexamethasone is perhaps, uh, potentially, more likely to cause laminitis than prednisolone. So it'd be good to look at that if we had enough numbers. Uh, 
Um, so, yeah, plenty of work to do. So what would your take-home message be? Uh, well, the evidence does not support a link between prednisolone and laminitis. Um, so I think don't beat yourself up about using prednisolone. Um, that said, on the basis of one study, would I completely dismiss a link? No, clearly not. We can all we can all think of cases that we've had where we where we suspect there's been um, there's been uh, a link. So the evidence wouldn't suggest it. Um, so don't beat yourself up about it. Where there are other risk factors, I think it's reasonable um, to be a little bit more concerned. Um, but essentially, if you need to use if you need to use prednisolone, and as an internal internal medicine clinician, I, a day rarely goes by where I don't. Um, then um, yeah, I don't I don't worry unduly about using it. Okay, well I think that's a really pertinent point for all practitioners. So thanks for joining us today to talk to us about it. No worries. Dr. Isabel Kern is a veterinary clinician at the Equine Clinic in Tappendorf, Germany. She's kindly agreed to discuss her recent paper. Bacteremia before, during and after tooth extraction in horses in the absence of antimicrobial administration. Hi Isabel, thanks for taking the time to chat to us about your study today. Um, You've been investigating the incidence of bacteremia before, during and after tooth extraction in the horse and in those that haven't received antibiotics. Um, As you wrote in your paper, this was investigated in humans and dogs um, within the 1990s. So my first question is, why do you think this hasn't been investigated in horses before now? And why did you decide to look into it? Yeah, well, I think equine dentistry has only gained more attention pretty much over the last two decades. And um, especially in the last few years, more and more equine vets specialize in dentistry and do perform a lot of research in this area. Um, And yeah, severe and even fatal sequelae have been... um, associated with transient bacteremia during dental extractions in human medicine or human dentistry, um, such as pneumonia or meningitis or endocarditis. And there are several case reports describing those kinds of fatal complications after tooth extraction um, in horses. So the aim of, of our study was to find out if this sort of transient bacteremia occurs during exodontia in horses as well. And if the bacteria found in the bloodstream would resemble those in the equine oral cavity. So what microbes do you find colonizing the oral cavity? Um, The microbes of the healthy as well as the diseased equine oral cavity consists of um, aerobes as well as anaerobes. We have streptococci, staphylococci, actinobacillus or pseudomonas species um, among the aerobe bacteria and um, fusobacterium prebotella, clostridium or peptostreptococcus would be very common um, anaerobic inhabitants of the oral cavity. Several studies have shown that, um, as well as in human medicine or in uh, small animal dentistry, the oral microflora of the horse shifts towards predominantly gram-negative and obligate anaerobes in oral um, or dental disease in horses. So could you give us a brief overview of um, how you conducted your study and what was the study design? Yeah, well, 20 horses of different ages and breeds were uh, presented for dental extractions, um, and these were included in the study. Um, The horse first underwent a general clinical examination to rule out any um, 
any inflammatory or infectious processes in other places other than the, the oral cavity. And then um, an oral endoscopic and um, x-ray images were obtained and an oral examination was performed to identify the diseased tooth or teeth. And according to the findings, 10 horses were placed in the group of horses um, undergoing cheek tooth extraction and 10 horses underwent extraction of an incisor or canine tooth. Then before surgery, both jugular veins were aseptically prepared and a catheter was placed in each vein under sterile conditions. One of these was for drug administration and the other one was for um, blood sampling. The extraction was performed in pretty much in a standard manner under sedation, local anesthesia and nerve blocks of the relevant facial nerves. Moreover, the horses received metacam, but no antibiotic agents were administered. Then, um, during surgery, blood samples were obtained under sterile, conditioned at, uh, under sterile conditions at different time points. And the first of these was um, 10 minutes prior to the start of the surgery, which was defined as the first incision or elevation of the gingiva from the diseased tooth. Then, once the surgery was started, one, five, and 20 minutes um, after the start, and every 30 minutes from then on until the end of surgery, which was defined as the complete removal of the tooth from its alveolus, another sample was obtained. Um, afterwards, 10 minutes were allowed to pass without any manipulations in the oral cavity once the tooth had been removed, and then a last sample was taken. Once removed, the tooth was placed on a sterile surface and a representative lesion on the tooth was sampled with a sterile cotton swab. Um, the blood samples as well as the, um, as well as the swab samples were um, immediately transferred into blood culture bottles and both the blood culture as well as the swab samples of the extracted teeth were um, examined for the growth of aerobic and anaerobic bacteria using routine microbiological um, processing procedures. Then during surgery and for 48 hours after surgery, the vital parameters of the horses were measured and documented at regular, in at regular intervals. And um, most horses were discharged 48 hours post-operatively. So how many horses did you find suffered from bacteremia? And in relation to uh, the surgery, what timings did this happen? Well, in total, 18 of the 20 horses developed bacteremia in at least one point during surgery, um, which makes an incidence of 90%. Among the 10 horses undergoing cheek tooth extraction, all 10 patients showed positive blood cultures during surgery, and two were even bacteremic before surgery, and in another two horses, um, bacteremia outlasted the procedure. In the other group, the horses with um, incisor or canine tooth extractions, eight of ten horses developed a transient bacteremia during surgery, but none of these horses showed bacteremia before or after surgery. The time point with the highest incidence of bacteremia was one minute after starting the procedure with uh, 16 of 20 bacteremic horses or an incidence of 80% there. The incidence then dropped rapidly over time until there are no positive blood cultures 80 or more minutes after starting the extraction. Um, the manipulation most commonly performed one minute after surgery, so 
that would be the manipulation that would lead to the highest incidence of bacteremia was actually the elevation or the incision of the gingiva. Um, so, yeah, that was the surgical step um, that produced the highest incidence of bacteremia um, and not as we thought before we started the study um, that the rocking movements of the tooth would be the, the main aspect that produced bacteremia. So did you find that the colonies you cultured from the blood samples uh, correlated with those that were associated with gingivitis and periodontal disease? Mm-hmm. Um, in the swap samples, as well as in the blood cultures, um, several bacterial species that are known to be associated with gingivitis or periodontal disease were isolated. Among those were, for example, Prevotella, Porphyromonas or Peptostreptococcus species. Um, it should be stressed, though, that they were found irrespective of the gingival status of the horses. So we could not show an increase of these species in horses with advanced gingivitis or periodontal disease. Um, as was the case in some studies performed in human dentistry. So did any of the horses develop um, distant site infections due to the bacteremia that you observed? Um, Even though transient periods of an elevated body temperature or even pyrexia were seen in some of the patients, none of the horses developed distant site infections or septicemia. But uh, the observation period only included 48 hours after the end of surgery. So a longer time span or a larger study population may be necessary to actually discover those complications um, because such sequelae as endocarditis or meningitis can take up to a few days to develop. So um, we might just have missed them with a short period of time that we, um, that we checked the horses after surgery. So do these results um, and the high incidence of bacteremia that you found, um, would they stimulate you to use prophylactic antimicrobials before extracting teeth? Yeah, this is actually a difficult question, but I know it's the question of the biggest interest probably regarding this study. Um, The transient bacteremia we discovered in the study did not affect the horses during the study period. And we know that many tooth extractions are performed without the administration of prophylactic antibiotics and still no problems occur. But um, if the surgeon decides to use antimicrobials, the microflora of the oral cavity should definitely be considered, bearing in mind that we have a large number of gram-negative and obligate anaerobic bacteria. So um, if someone decides to use antimicrobials, um, an appropriate antimicrobial drug should be should be chosen. Um, and yeah, especially in the light of the um, of increasing resistances to um, antimicrobial drugs, their prophylactic use should be considered for each case individually. And uh, um, in any case, um, a close monitoring of the post-extraction patient is recommended to reveal upcoming complications um, as quickly as possible, allowing um, immediate intervention. Okay, well, thanks very much, Isabel. That's um, a nice, interesting study. And thanks for joining us to discuss it today. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. And please tune in for October's edition.